So uh, when I was a kid, I was taught to uh, have a big imagination. And so uh, let's, have a, let's have an imagination together, shall we? Let's say that every single person in this room, all of us together, we decided that we were going to run a half marathon. Again, use your imagination, all right? We decided, all of us, all of us in our current state, okay, we're like, we're going to do a, a church-wide half marathon, all right? And so all of us were, were all in. We were training together. We were, um, you know, kind of dragging some along with us, and others were far ahead, but we were doing it together. We were in it to win it. Now, you get to the end of that marathon, and I, I kind of ran a half marathon one time. It was the worst mistake I ever made in my life. Um, one of, top three maybe. I won't, I'll spare you all the details of the stories. But, but right at the end of the marathon, I want to I poll the audience, okay? So you end the marathon. My question is, which of these drinks, which of these drinks are you going for, okay? Now, just, just think about this. Again, imaginary, okay, first. So some of you, uh, some of you would reach for, for water, right? Bottle of water, Aquafina, okay, I don't, like the Walmart brand, I don't know what that's called, like good water or something like that, like that's what you would reach for. Uh, others of you, I used to call this heavenly nectar, okay? Um, <laughs> maybe you'll be surprised to know this, but I spent a good majority of my life as a youth pastor uh, completely addicted to Mountain Dew, okay? In 2006, I repented and left the Dew. Um, outside of a good road trip, every once in a while, my taste buds get to wetting it again. But, but some of you would reach strangely for a Mountain Dew, right? And then others of you, influenced by Michael Jordan and the like, you would reach for, that's right, the, uh, the ever-famous Gatorade to quench your thirst. Now, I, I want to see. I want to see how the room breaks down, okay? After a marathon, half marathon, who in this room would reach for a water by raise of hand, okay? Several of you. But not all of you, right? Okay? Interesting to know. Who in this room would reach for the Gatorade? All right? Can you, can you just taste it going down right now, right? Like a beautiful Gatorade. And then out of curiosity and for fun, who in this room would reach for a Mountain Dew Diet Coke or something of the like? Who would reach for a soda to quench the thirst? Can you guys stand up for me? All those, can you guys stand up? There they are. Yes. Jay Scott, what would be your soda choice, man? It doesn't matter. You're just going for soda. Okay. <laughs> well, the water drinkers are really loyal to water. That's what I've learned, okay? So you go over to their house, and they're like, so, hey, what would you like to drink, water or water? You know? And I'm like, I don't know. I was kind of hoping for something, some kind of variance, right? Um, so some of you water drinkers, here's, here's a statement that you'll make. Because I've heard it over and over. You'll say something like, I love water. Okay? Bold statement. Um, but it has limitations. <clears throat> okay? So at my grandmother's funeral, uh, she's passed away this past summer. We, uh, I, I did her funeral as a part of her funeral at the church I grew up in, First Reformed Church of Wichert, Illinois. Out in the country. And I was thirsty. Right? So what did I do? I, I go up to that same, it has not changed, okay, the same drinking fountain that as a four, five, six-year-old, I went to quench my parched lips. And I go up and I take a drink and my family's here, like it tastes like rust coming through. And it's the exact same taste, like Bree, some of the rest of you guys, right? It's the exact same taste from when we were growing up, right? And so in that case, some of the same water drinkers who say, I love water, would say, uh, but not that water, right? Not that water. Uh, then simultaneously, right, you know, like some, some of you guys, have you ever been to a house out in the country that's really big and has a pond? Um, and I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, Dan and Amy Moore's house, it's like out there in Bellflower, Missouri, like far out. And their water has a strong like sulfur hint to it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Sure, not quite sure if you're drinking toilet water or water from the tap. It's questionable, right? It's like, is this? I don't know. There's, it's slightly tinted, right? Like, so the same people, let's say I love water, are the same people who have limitations to that. Now, I want to propose to you that that same principle works 
generally across the board. You, you have loves, you have passions, you have, we could say, things that satisfy you. But it seems that all of those things have certain limitations. If you change the variable, then the same satisfaction that it once brought you at the end of a marathon, now, it, like, maybe I'll choose something else. If i got to choose rusty water or a Gatorade, I, I mean, I, I think I'm going to go Gatorade. Now, what if I told you tonight that we could discover together the secret of contentment tonight? What if I could tell you that we could journey in such a way through God's Word that we could learn together what, what truly satisfies and it being something that you don't expect? Uh, I think if we put like outside, you know, in, in our, like our new sermon title series was the secret to contentment. Like, don't you think it would draw some folks in? Because every single one of us, I believe everywhere, are looking for two things, love and truth in that order. But I'm going to add somewhere, three, four, five, we're, we're looking for contentment, peace. We could even add maybe in that happiness. And so if there is, biblically, the secret to contentment, and if, in fact, we could learn what that means tonight, that it wasn't based on variables, but it was based on something deeper that satisfies, then don't you think, like, this would be a good night to be together? Don't you think? So it's with, it's with tremendous, tremendous anticipation. I'm going to pray. We're going to put a scriptural puzzle together tonight and ask God to show us the secret of contentment. The secret of being satisfied. Let's pray together. Come on. Father. Father, like only you can. Right now, expose every, every fiber of our being. Leave no piece of us unturned. That at the core of us, not just what we would say, but God, what we would believe, that at the core of us, you would change our minds, you would change our hearts, God. So here, take every fabric of us right now, God, and do what you would do. For your glory and namesake, and all God's people said, amen. I'll cover this up so it's not a temptation for you. So, we're ending Philippians. I began um, with a very strategic piece of scripture. One that I want to begin with again here tonight. Acts chapter 16. So setting sail from Trous, we made a direct voyage, says, uh, says Luke, writing about his entourage at this point. Uh, to uh, Samarathos, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to where? Come on. To Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. I told you guys when we first mentioned this uh, scripture that there wasn't enough Jewish men to make a synagogue. So Paul knows this, okay, his entourage knows this, and so they go to a place where it's uh, presumed that there will be a place of prayer. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And, and I love saying that because anyone who was here in our Acts journey, I just like, it was one of my favorite statements, a seller of purple goods. I just love it. Wouldn't you love to have that as a trade? What do you do? I sell purple goods. It's amazing, right? Like, let's talk about that. Now, Lydia, what's that? I didn't even think about that. Praise be to the Lord. To I'm serious. Total sovereignty. Here we go. Okay. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart. You see that? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I'll guarantee you, Paul wasn't talking about the weather. Okay. He wasn't talking about the soccer score between Jerusalem and and uh, Asia Minor, no, verse 15, and after she was baptized, so she hears the message of the gospel, she then gets baptized, look at this, her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us, what happens is, the gospel makes way into Europe, and through Europe, then all of a sudden, uh, so Philippi, I told you when we began this letter, sees the first conversions outside of all of like the Mesopotamian area and pretty soon now into Macedonia and, and to us. So Philippi is tremendous. It's a huge piece of the scripture. Just to remind you, to show you the map, to show you where we've been, okay? 
You'll see Philippi up there about center of your screen towards the top. This is one of Paul's missionary journeys. You'll see a, a trouse there. He sails across the sea to Neapolis and then to Philippi. So we all collectively together should thank the Lord for the work done in Philippi. So open your Bibles, my friends, now to the end. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. We're going to close up. Next week we'll begin a new journey of which I'll announce later to leave your anticipation wandering. Here we go. Philippians chapter 4, let's start here in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had, Paul says, no opportunity, which is a very gracious way of saying it seems like you've rekindled your love for me. Now, it's been about, by my estimations, and certainly many other scholars, about 10 years since Paul uh, first landed in Philippi, okay? Or around the area, or at least heard about Philippi, okay? Epaphroditus takes the message of the gospel to Philippi, and it's, it's been like about that long until Paul was in the area. And what we know from the scripture is that Philippi becomes a, a massive support ne a network to, to Paul. So much so that while he's in prison, which he is now as he writes this, that the churches have to support him. They have to feed him. They have to bring him clothes. In other words, there's no like a, a corporal system that, that takes care of its prisoners. So you're taken care of by the church. So what Paul says in verse 10 is like, all right, like I've, I've received the love that you have for me, but, but I know that the past few years... It's just because you didn't have an opportunity. Maybe you're being persecuted or maybe the, the distance between me and Rome was too far. Whatever, he says, like, I trust that you love me. Verse 11, look what he says. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word? Content. He says, I've learned to be. Uh, would you disagree with me? What a lesson to be learned. And I want to I draw you in. Again, there, there's so many things that if you just study quickly, you miss it. If he says that he's learned it, then that means it wasn't always learned, right? So what I'm saying is, listen, if you're here and you're desiring, uh, desiring sanctification or you want to grow, like, welcome. Okay, there's no one here who's arrived. There's no one here who is perfectly obeying the Lord Jesus. There is no one here who's master contentment. Paul says himself, I learned and so, like, what if even in our hearts right now, we were just like, God, teach us. God, show us. God, reveal to us. He says, I've learned that in every situation, and I want to point you to the exact phrasing, I am to be content. Uh, now, I looked at this from several different ways, and Jared certainly helped. You know, when you look at the word content in the Greek, it, it has a sense of sufficiency. And I would even say, um, in, in, the, in the base Greek, with no biblical overtones, it has a sense maybe even of, of self-sufficiency. Hang on. But at its core, the word content means to be satisfied. The opposite, of course, would be discontentment. And we know how deep discontentment runs. A few months ago, I, uh, I preached a sermon that um, I didn't feel like went well. And um, went home, was struggling, was feeling insecure. Um, sin and lies were overtaking me. It's one thing to think that you didn't do so well, and it's another thing to like, make some sinful action because of it. So um, needing, in my insecurity, some affirmation, feeling like it bombed, I texted someone who I knew would encourage me. And you may say, well, but Mark, like, what's Aaron about that? Um, what's Aaron about it is my satisfaction was going to be in the words of man. So I'm just confessing my sin. I texted because I knew the soul per I, I knew they would say it was the best sermon ever. And in that sinful moment, that is what my heart needed to be satisfied. It was discontent. Like, I, I wasn't okay. And so sure enough, right, like, Hey, and, and I worded it in a way that, you know, didn't appear so sinful, right? Hey, just curious, what did the Lord say to you tonight through that horrific sermon, right? Um, 
And of course, right, like the exact thing I was expecting, the, the text comes back, Mark, like, brother, you ripped face apart tonight. Like, that was the, that was the best sermon ever. That, that opened me up and brought up all these things. And, and that may be true. Because the Lord works in spite of me and in spite of us, amen? Like, he doesn't need me to preach God's word. He can get his word across just fine. And I'm, I'm just bringing you into the depth of sin when discontentment grabs your heart. I get discontent in my parenting. Not satisfied in how things are going. And I'll, I'd even say, like, up to a week ago, um, I started taking that out on my wife, started blaming her for areas in my parenting that I was inconsistent. I, I would say things that were trying to cut her so that she would be convicted about her parenting when, when all the while it was my heart that needed to repent. But when, when discontent grabs you, like it, it, it drives us to do very deep-rooted sinful things. There was a time a few months ago where I was, I, I wasn't um, content in my missionality. And so I woke up one day and I was like, all right, like, today I'm going to live on mission. And what I had believed in my sinful mind at the moment, I had believed that somehow it was a tally score. And again, like, I'm not talking about what you would say because we would all say nice things, right? Like, there's no tally score, we're saved by grace through faith, but aren't there times where you struggle believing it? Aren't, like, Aren't there times where you act and you think that somehow God is like still at the whiteboard? He's like, way to go, Mark, right? Another one for the good side. And Mark, if he's just eat, you know, if, if this side weighs the scale appropriately, then in the end, like, come on in. And so, it, it, like, all my missionality that day, and I was intentional. I mean, I was going for it, you know, every store, every gas station, every restaurant interaction. Like, I was with joy bringing up the gospel. And you know what I was believing the whole time in my mind? That God, every single time, was crossing the check mark. Hey, way to go, Mark. You're an unbelievable servant, Mark. Well done, good and awesome servant, Mark. You're the best of them all. And I'm just putting that before you now. And, and I the heinous things that discontentment can do. And, and I, I just want to, like, I don't have enough time to continue to confess. So I, I'm saying, like, for just me, I long to learn this lesson. Anyone else? If he has learned how to be content in every situation, then all I'm saying is, Paul, do share. Like, do teach us. I was sharing something with the guys beforehand, and I want to make sure we're all on the same page. We believe here at Matthias's lot that God's word is inerrant. That is perfect. So I want to make sure you understand this then. Then that means that also the things that Paul says about what? About his journey are true as well. Do you guys know what I'm saying? Because sometimes in our minds we separate. Okay, every time Paul talks about God, but then the rest of it is like, you know, is, is like summary or commentary. But no, that means that when Paul says, I have learned to be content, that means the statement is true if you believe the Bible is inerrant. Does that make sense, everybody? So that means then that everything that comes after this text, we can latch on to. So, what is it right now that you don't find yourself satisfied. You find yourself grabbing and searching. Okay? Let's look at what Paul brings us into. Verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I was doing some stat checking earlier on the internet because it's all true on the internet, right? Speaking of an errand, the stats say 70% of those who win the lottery end up going broke. 70%. Okay, so imagine yourself now, homeless, 
like a, a completely abased. We're going to see a, a quote from Spurgeon here in a second talking about that. And all of a sudden you're given $60 million. Right. Now all conventional wisdom would say something like, listen, spend a couple million for fun. Right? Like bless people. Certainly tithe on that. Right? 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 And then, and then invest the rest and only spend the interest. And if they did that, then money would be there for their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids and, you know, hopefully somewhere in there Jesus comes back, right? Like, like their money would still be there, right? But what happens? They don't know how to abound. So when Paul's saying, I've, I've, I've got to this place where I'm content both in plenty and in want, I want you to understand, sometimes we just think of, of like, being content in the, in the want when we're in need. But how about in the plenty, my friends? How about when God's grace in whatever form or fashion, through relationships, through resources, through jobs, through networking, whatever. What what about the times where he's just like throwing it, heaping it on? How do you do in those times being content? Here's what Spurgeon says. Old dead guys are good to get wisdom from. There are a great many men that know a little how to be abased or to be in want, that do not know at all how to abound. When they are put down into the pit with Joseph, they look up and see the starry promise, and they hope for an escape. But when they are put on the top of a pinnacle, their heads grow dizzy, and they are ready to fall. Again, like in this teaching, it's, it's generally okay, yes, contentment, needs to come when all of a sudden, like, everything is taken from us, when we go through a Job kind of scenario. But some of you are in plenty right now, and you find your heart incredibly discontent. And those who are in want, you think to yourself, if I only could get all of this, then all of my problems would go away. But Jesus said it's very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because, like, it provides this premise that they don't need anything. All right, are you ready? You guys ready? Philippians 4, 13. Now, when I was 15 years old, (laughs) I started my very first ministry. I had a vision of uh, starting a a youth revival, a youth um, uh, rally, we could say. I called it uh, Blaze at the Barn, and it turned out to be an appropriate name because the barn had no AC, and it was about 106 that day. So we blazed, all 10 of us. But I decided that I needed a a ministry name to to kind of drive everything. And so I came up with what I kept all through uh, all throughout college. Ended up having like a trailer that I hooked to my Dodge Avenger that I would like take sound equipment in. I I was the uh, in a band for a while. Don't hold that against me or judge me. And and all of that was under that premise. But my my ministry name was Four One Three Ministries. And I have to be honest with you, as as I look back at my understanding of this verse, I did not have a clue what it was talking about. And I'm just going to tell you right now, the majority of you in this room coming into this right now, like this is what you think of, next slide, when you, when you think of this verse, right? You think of uh, all, all the tats, you know, Philippians 4.13, some of you next slide, you, you go all Tebow right now, right? Like there it is, Philippians 4.13, right? So it's 4th and 30, you know, and we're down 1,700, Right? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And, and it's this kind of victorious, uh, uh, one of the famous Yankee uh, closers, okay? Mariana R- Rivera, it's hard to see right there, but just under the Nike swoosh, appropriate, right? Yes, that's right, Philippians 4, 13. We've used this verse as like the corporate verse of victory. And yet somehow, in both locker rooms at the Super Bowl... This verse is used by the chaplain, right? Hey, boys, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? And I'm a Cubs fan, so I want to hear that verse over and over and over, 
This year we're coming, we're coming. Right. We've used this verse only to think of some kind of like Christian triumph. But, but even with the verses that we just read, are you starting just a little bit to see the context? Okay. Now let's keep going. I want to show you this, okay? So it's, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens, or through him who strengthens me. Next slide. It's not this. I will do all things. It's not that. Because if it was, I will do all things, uh, th then somehow we become sovereign. Then somehow we become in control, that, that, that all of a sudden we can tap into some power source, and whatever it is that we decide, at whatever time we decide it, then we will be able to. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, uh, thankfully in this church body, we have a man by the name of Pastor Jared, and uh, I, I give him aptitude and, and credit so much because he, the dude is boss, okay? I just, I love him. He is like 10 times smarter than me. So this was our study of just this verse, okay? Like th that's just Philippians 4.13. So we sat down at this table and just talked about one verse. Because I, I told him, I was like, I want to get it right, okay? So after a lot of wrestling and looking, looking at the Greek, here's maybe one of the best ways that we could term what Paul is saying here. David Chapman says this, a professor at Covenant. I have power for all circumstances through the one who strengthens me. So in all circumstances, plenty and in wants, horrific or joyful, the most difficult or it seems the easiest, I have a certain kind of power, but that power is through somebody. It's through, let me say it this way, a sovereign strengthener. So here's how I would phrase it. Next slide. I have all that I need to be content in every circumstance I face because of a sovereign strengthener. Now that's a little bit different than it's, it's fourth and ninety. And all of a sudden we're speaking out, I can do all things. Because I don't know what all things are to a sovereign God. Are you guys with me? I don't know what all things are. I don't know what things he's going to do. But what I do know is what is impossible for man is possible for God. What I do know is that he can do anything. I want, I want you to hear this appropriately. Like, I was even thinking about it in, in, in this context. Like, listen, listen like, saying I, I'm, I'm going to walk on water is weird to say. But if God wanted one of you to walk on water, it would happen. Like, Dave, if he wanted you right now, like, to make a puddle, and you right before us would just walk on water, and you put on a purple shirt, right? Like, if that could happen, <laughs> like, like, God would make it happen. Now, you can start to see some of the intricacies then, right? You can start to see where this verse has led us to errant ways. But Paul says, I found the secret to contentment. So what is it then? What is the secret? Hang on to that thought. Let's keep going. Next slide. Verse 14. He says to Philippi, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Again, he's being supported by this church. And you Philippians, yourselves, uh, you know in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Let me make sure you understand this. Much like when we started, when we planted, which by the way, our 10-year anniversary celebration, crazy, 10 years, is coming up next Sunday, St. Charles High School, okay? We're going to have a worship gathering, a short worship gathering in St. Charles High School, where we, where we had our very first worship gathering. And then St. Charles High School has let us use their entire football stadium. And we're going to do a barbecue and play ultimate, and there's going to be like 18 bounce houses. It's going to be awesome. But in the beginning of our church plan, we had to raise about, in those days, $200,000. And that was just to exist. And you're like, but Mark, what, what did all that money go to? It went to mission. It, it went to uh, uh, paying for the salaries of uh, the pastors. It went to serving the city. Like, we went out. The, the very first conversation I ever had about fundraising 
I mean, I was nervous. I'd never asked anybody for a dime, and I didn't even know this guy. But God uh, set up a meeting at Crackle Barrel, which is what the Lord does, right? It's like, look, good stuff's going to happen. Better go to Crackle Barrel, right? You can play tic-tac-toe and stuff. Um, so I sit down with this guy. I'm nervous. I'm 24 years old. And I was like, hey, hey, brother. Uh, and I, like, came in really, like, skittishly. Like, hey, uh, so we, we don't have a sound. Like, right now our sound system is my boom box, you know? And I was like, I don't know if that's going to cut. I'm like, listen, we, really, we need $15,000. And I, like, didn't know this guy. I didn't, like, we were, got connected through a friend. So I, he, like, looked deep into my eyes for a moment. I'm like, oh, no, you know, I, I said something wrong. And then he gets out his checkbook, okay? And he, you know, he started writing, and I'm trying to, like, do a little peek, you know? <laughs> so at first I see, two, at first I think I see 200 bucks. I'm like, hey, take it, right? Like, glory be to God. He hands a check over $20,000 at Crackle Barrel, right? <laughs> and so I said, hey, can I buy your breakfast? You know, like, I mean, <laughs> got it. Don't worry about it. I got you, man. I got you. We'll figure this out, you know. <laughs> but I think sometimes we forget that this is what Paul had to do. He, he was living on the gifts of the church. Now, there is a season of his life, yes, that he's a tent maker, and he's helping support that and supplement that. But there's also seasons where he's just being supported by the church. And so what he, what he tells Philippi is, listen, you came on board. This is why this letter is filled with so much joy and compassion and love for Philippi. They came on board. They supplied. But what does Paul say? He makes sure that they know, I'm content. In the times where I had no food, in the times where I was like eating, eating from the buffet, it's all good for the glory of God. You came, except you only. He says, verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Which that is really ambitious. Because there's this thought maybe in their heart, well, the Thessalonians are taking care of them. But now they're like, no. We're going to step in. It's, it's the same reason why right now so many folks are, are fundraising for Ecuador. It's the same kind of principle. God, thankfully, has a huge wallet. And I'm thankful that no man holds God's wallet. Amen? Thankful that the Lord does. Okay? And so what Paul's saying is like God has provided. Next slide. So we see him as he continues here in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What is he talking about? The gospel. The message of the gospel, I, like I, I don't seek the money. I'm not in it for, in fact, like if we were just going by this passage, he would be a horrible televangelist. Think about it. He's like, in plenty and in want, I'm good. Have you ever seen a TV show where it was like, only God in the plenty, right? There is no want. He would be horrible at that because he's bringing people into realness. God will take care of me. I'm content. I'm satisfied in all things. I receive full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus is the visitor, the spokesman. The gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. They even sent something that what Paul is commending is, is acceptable in the sight of God. He goes on, next slide in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to what? Come on. His riches in glory in Christ Jesus, and every single person in this room might, right now must hear this. He will supply according to what? His riches. Is his grace rich? Is his love rich? Is his mercy rich? Is his faithfulness rich? Right? Because some people have taken this verse and been like, come on, God, bring it on. I want to change the stats of winning the lottery, the Lord, right? So go ahead and bless me. Have you ever had the premonition walking into a gas station that you're going to, like, win the lottery? It's like once a week for me, you know? And I think I've shared this with you guys before, but I'll walk in and I'll be, like, randomly in my mind, I'll think, uh, you need to buy a lottery ticket. And I'll be like, Lord, is this, is this from you? Is this from you? Have you, don't you guys ever think that? And I'm like, no, that's not from God. And then I walk out thinking maybe I was disobedient, you know? Like, this seems weird. <laughs> that's not what he's talking about here. He says, God will supply every need of you according to his riches. And then verse 20, I absolutely love to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And what's the word there? 
So amen in our um, language has become like, a, like an enter button in an email to God. Uh, it's, it's become a, a means of transition. It's become like a goodbye. They got them done now and goodbye, right? But I've learned to say amen. But in reality, the word has much deeper roots. What the word is to be intended for is we agree. We agree together. And you're like, but, but I say amen at the end of my prayers. Then what you're agreeing with is the Lord. God, do your will. God, move. Amen, God. I agree with your scripture. I agree with your character. I agree with who you are. And, and you're so, right, you're so accustomed to teaching your kids to fold their hands and get in proper prayer mode. And then in the end, they say amen. But, but parents in the room, are you teaching your kids what it means? Hey, kids, listen, don't say amen if you don't agree. You guys with me? Nobody in this body say amen if you do not agree with the prayers that have been prayed. Just let it go. Let it ride. And you're like, but God won't hear us if we don't say amen. Not true. Not true. And so Paul, at the end of this long rhetoric, he said three finalies. He's like, glory be to God. Right? Amazing. He ends with this, kind of a final greeting. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and we know that there were several with Paul. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. This, this is interesting, right? He's in Rome in prison. Okay, so all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Well, there's a few different lines of thought here. I, I think part of it is, is that Paul's uh, commending the fact that there's some, uh, there, there's some folks that are watching him. Uh, there's some soldiers and guards that, that are a part of it. In fact, we've seen in Philippians, right, that the guard have, have come to hear. So I think even he's saying here, like, because of their salvation, like, guess what? Even Caesar's household, they send greetings, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, he says. And you can imagine, just, just get in this moment for me. You can imagine as he, like, finishes and he watches the spokesman or the carrier of the letter walk away. It's an, yet another moment in his shepherding where he just says, God, like, I pray that this encourages this church. I pray that it nurtures their heart. I pray, God, that it does something in them that only you can do. But we're still left with a question. A very important question. What is the secret of contentment? Well, um, is it contained in Philippians 4.13? Yes. But it's deeper. Uh, you see, we can't just read verses for one verse. Agree? Okay. So it's very easy to say, today's devotional will be Philippians 4.13. And tomorrow's devotional will be Philippians 4.13. And the next day... But in doing so, you would have missed the context. And if you don't listen, read Philippians. Then you're missing what Paul's saying holistically. So let me remind you what he has said about contentment thus far. Okay? Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking about being in prison. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, we just talked about that, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for what? It's for Christ. He's saying, I'm content. I'm in prison. And I'm content. I'm satisfied. I don't, I don't need anything else. Okay. We saw this later in uh, chapter 1. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And remember this from chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm content in it all. And again, like, if this is God's word, then, then this is Paul's heart. Can we, right? And so he's saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like, I, I've, I've come to this place of being satisfied in something that has said, God, like whatever you want and however you want to get it and whatever you want to do in it. Okay, he also said this, 
Next slide. Later in Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Look at this. What's, what's the word? Come on. But also suffer. Would this have been like, is this a famous message in today's context? No way. Like somehow we've forgotten this. Hey guys, look, in, like in Christianity, there, it's not suffering, right? Like we're not called to share in that suffering. No, that's not what Paul says. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. And I want to make sure every single one of you understand what the conflict is. It is over for the gospel. Standing for. And to start standing on peripheral issues. The reality is, when you stand on the truth of Christ came, Christ died, Christ resurrected, Christ coming again, that he's the Savior, that he's the Redeemer, that it pleased God to crucify his Son so that in the crucifixion we would be redeemed. When you stand on that truth, my friends, that will bring suffering. And that's the kind of suffering he's talking about here, not arguments for, for or against the dinosaurs, right? If you suffer for your beliefs on the dinosaurs, that is an exempt clause from this passage, okay? Philippians 2, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, this isn't good, okay? Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and look, rejoice with you all. He's already implying that they're going to be rejoicing over Paul being poured out as a drink offering. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And finally, next slide. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'm content in every circumstance. And what is the secret? The secret is the difference between these two things. Next slide. There's a difference. Everything else has variables. Everything else changes. Everything else moves, shifts, morphs conforms, distorts. Your marriage does, your spouse does. Your kids do, your job does. Your finances fluctuate, your sickness, your health, your car. Every single thing apart from Christ changes. The one difference of everything else in Christ is He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change. And so then all of a sudden we, we start getting at the core of what he says. I can do all things through what? Come on. Through him who strengthens me. Next slide. It is impossible to be content in the things that change. Our only hope is contentment in one who never changes. Because you take the water out of Aquafina and it quenches your thirst. And you say, I love water, but then you go over here and you know what? It doesn't quite satisfy. Why? Because it changes. The secret to contentment is in a God who never does. Is in a God who we can fully trust in. Is in a God who, as we learn about his character, he continues to lavish the truth of who he is over and over and over. You guys know this. You're trying to ask yourself, am I satisfied in your marriage? Can I ask you this? Can you ever be fully satisfied in your marriage apart from Christ? Listen. Apart from Christ, what happens when the body changes? What happens when sickness comes? Apart from Christ, what happens when they don't seem as interested? Are you still satisfied? But in Christ, all of a sudden your spouse's health wanes. And in the flesh, it would be what, but now they can't, now they can't like be my spouse like they were. 
Can I ask you in that moment, where is your contentment then? If it fluctuates on the health of your spouse, apart from Christ, then you will go searching. Your eyes will wander, your heart will distance, and you will try to find satisfaction in something else. In Christ, now all of a sudden you see everything through the lens of one who doesn't change. God, you're sovereign. God, I can, even in this very difficult circumstance, I can rest in your strength. So God, help me love my spouse like I've never loved them before. God, help me sit by that bed. God, help me journey through their weight changes. God, uh, please, God, give me strength to walk alongside of them as they go through difficult stuff from their past. You see, we can't be content in the things that change. Because they will go from one side of the other, sometimes, sometimes in the same exact day. What we can do, my friends, is be content in one who never changes. The greatest impact of this is on mission. God says, all right, Mark, I want you to sell your house and to move it into an, into an apartment. Bring all three of your kids. I know you don't have any pets. You're biologically against them. So, Mark, take your three kids sell your house and move into, into an apartment. Well, what do I do? I start measuring the content level of that calling. And if my, content, uh, my, my contentment isn't in Christ, then I find myself saying, well, well, well hold on a second, but, but if that happens and we're not going to be able to, but we're, and we start, but I'll, I won't be able to host but where am I going to put law family, God? But, but, but Lord, like, how is this going to work? And you know what I do? I take all of that calling, all that mission, all of that clarity, and I put it in the camp of, I can't obey that and be content. And then there's other things, right? Where God's like, hey, listen, I want you to go to uh, QT and get a Diet Coke for the glory of my son. I want you to befriend this person that's going to be easy to love. It's obedience still. I funnel it through my mind. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll find definite contentment in that relationship because I know how loving they are. Here's what Paul says. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and what else? Come on. Calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, and it has nothing to do with Paul and everything to do with a sovereign strengthener. Philippians is filled with commands that are not easy. Suffer for the sake of Christ. Lose it all for the sake of Christ. Leave everything for the glory of the renown, and on and on. And in the end, now I finally get what he's saying. There is no way you can obey these commands if you aren't content in Christ. If you're reaching and searching for anything else, then you'll funnel mission instead of in all ways and in all things saying, yes, God. Amen, God. I agree, so Lord, do it. Lord, if you need me to lose my job so that it would bring me to this point, then God, for your name and your glory, then God, you do it. God, if you need to teach me that I need to lose it all so that I can find true contentment in you and you alone, then God, take everything away. You want to pray that? God, I pray that you would flourish in massive amounts of grace in my business so that I could be generous and bless others. God, please, in the, in the plenty, God, be glorified. The secret, my brothers and sisters, of contentment is in an object, a person, a God who does not fluctuate. 
And so because of that, we can say, you are our sovereign strengthener. So lead us. And our response with your strength, listen, will be yes. I will suffer for your sake. I will live for your glory. I will embody the truths of who you are so that your name would be made great in all the land and mine would be diminished. That is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So um, there's a lot of stuff that's funneling through your mind, my guess is. A lot of ways that you've tried to mask. A lot of ways you've tried to search. A lot of comforts you've tried to seek after to provide you something. You know what this meal is tonight? This meal right now is I need nothing else. You're my bread you're my portion, you're my hope, you're my life. I need nothing else. That's what this meal is, church. It's receiving the body of Christ that was broken for you, for every believer in the room, and it's breaking off a piece of it. And it's dipping it in this cup, which represents the blood of the new covenant. And in this act of remembrance of Jesus, what you're saying tonight is I need nothing else but you, so God, take everything else. Focus me in. Grab my heart. If you want to learn tonight how to be content, then ask him right now in this moment to teach you and get ready. A gracious God will show you what life looks like with him and without him. He's our hope. So God, come now. As a body, as we agree together, I pray that this meal would be the reception of anything and everything you desire from our life. For the things specifically right now, God, that you've called us to and we've we funneled it through, whether it makes us happy or not, I pray that we would repent and say, yes, God. Let's receive this meal in celebration tonight, church. Come when you're ready.